Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Chelsea Clinton, and this is In Fact a podcast about why public health matters, even when we're not in a pandemic. Today, we're looking at gun violence and firearm injury prevention. While so much public health attention has been focused on the pandemic over the past year, understandably, 2020 was actually the deadliest year with respect to gun violence in at least two decades. 44,000 Americans lost their lives to gun violence, including 24,000 who died by suicide with a gun. For too long, stigma and political polarization have prevented us from addressing the public health crisis that is gun violence in America. In fact, for 20 years, federal agencies like the CDC and NIH were effectively barred from even researching the issue. Thankfully, that has recently changed. And the good news is, there's no shortage of experts and activists who are working tirelessly to take on our gun violence crisis and save lives including pediatric trauma surgeon Chaitan Satya and Briad Smith, who is working to mobilize young people through March for Our Lives. We'll hear from both on this episode. But first, I'm talking with Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Before she founded Moms Demand Action, Shannon was a former communications executive and a stay-at-home mom of five. Her life changed forever on December 14th, 2012, with the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. And that's where we started our conversation. When I was folding laundry, I lived in Indiana at the time and had the TV on in the background and suddenly heard breaking news that there was an active shooter in a place called Newtown, Connecticut. And so like so many Americans, I stopped what I was doing. I I sat on the side of my bed and I just watched this horrific tragedy unfold. And even now, over eight years later, it's hard to fathom that 20 children and six educators were murdered in the sanctity of an American elementary school. And I was devastated. We all were. But that devastation quickly turned to rage for me because I was watching some politicians and pundits being interviewed saying the solution was somehow more guns. That if only those teachers had been armed, maybe there would have been fewer fatalities. 
And I knew nothing about gun violence. I knew nothing about gun laws. I really didn't know much about the legislative process. I just knew that was not true. I knew that was a lie. And the next day, I went into my kitchen, opened my laptop, and looked for an organization like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, something that had been so pivotal to me as a teenager in the 1980s, just to watch how this group of women in particular had changed the culture around drinking and driving. We came to this issue in many ways, or or I did, because of this school shooting, but then learning that really mass shootings, school shootings are about 1% of the gun violence in this country, and that 100 people are shot and killed every day. The gun homicides, the gun suicides, the unintentional shootings, the domestic gun violence, all of it is important. We must solve all of it. There was nothing like that. I couldn't find anything that that existed. I came to this issue as a white suburban mom who was afraid her kids weren't safe in their schools. Shame on me and, and other white women who took so long to get off the sidelines. Because our black and brown sisters have been doing this work for decades in their communities, mostly unseen. What have been some of the successes that you've seen over the almost decade of Moms Demand? We really work on this issue in three buckets, legislatively, electorally, and culturally. So when you look at the work we've done at the legislative level, we have now passed laws that disarm domestic abusers in 29 states. We now have background checks on every gun sale in 21 states. We've passed something called a red flag law in 19 states. So a red flag law allows families or police to petition a judge for a temporary restraining order to remove the guns from someone who is at risk either to themselves or to others. And data has shown these are are really effective. We've also passed laws in 19 states that close what's called the Charleston loophole. So federal law requires licensed dealers to perform a background check, but if those background checks haven't been completed within three days, the licensed dealer is free to sell the gun anyway. And that's how the Charleston shooter got his gun used to kill Black parishioners in a church there. So this is really important life-saving legislation that we've passed, and data shows that they save lives, these laws. When we work on this electorally, it is holding those lawmakers accountable who didn't do the right thing legislatively. And our motto is really, do the right thing and we'll have your back, do the wrong thing and we'll have your job. And it takes several election cycles to get to a point where you change the dynamic of who's aligning either with the gun lobby or with really angry moms. If you go back to when Barack Obama was elected in 2008, about a quarter of all Democrats in Congress had an A rating from the NRA. Today, none do. And I just think it's a matter of time before everyone is really on the right side of history. And then culturally, this is a big part of what we do. Whether it's putting pressure on companies, hundreds have changed their policies, particularly around open carry because of Moms Demand Action, everything from Wegmans to Walgreens to Walmart. And then on top of that, we educate gun owners and non-gun owners about secure gun storage. About 4.6 million children lived in homes with unsecured guns That means they're not locked, they're loaded, they're easy to access. And so we have a a program called Be Smart, where we encourage parents to ask about guns and gun storage when they send their kids to friends and families' homes, but also sending these materials home through school boards and city councils. Over a million families have received our secure gun storage materials. As the parent of three kids, I wouldn't just feel comfortable. I would feel like it was my responsibility to ask those questions. So how do we help other parents feel like that's just part of the job of being a parent is having those conversations non-judgmentally, openly, honestly, because that is something we should know about where our kids are spending time. That's absolutely true, especially in a country where there are about 400 million guns. And you shouldn't assume whether someone is a gun owner or not. And look, the vast majority of gun owners in this country are responsible and they do securely store their firearms, but there are too many who don't. And so having that conversation is part of a parent's responsibility. I can't tell you how many volunteers have had this conversation. They decided to practice, for example, with their in-laws and have found out that their in-laws, in fact, keep a loaded gun in a shoebox under their kids' beds because they assume that's where burglars won't look. Wow. Not realizing the, the risks involved. If you want help understanding how to have those conversations, uh, you may feel awkward or concerned, you can go to besmartforkids.org. And we make a lot of information and tools and even videos available to spark those conversations. The purchase of guns has actually surged over the last year plus of the 
pandemic. Could you talk a little bit about how COVID-19 has impacted gun violence? Yes. It's so important to understand that COVID has really exacerbated our nation's gun violence crisis, which was out of control to begin with. Gun violence is really an epidemic within a pandemic. When you look at the different types of gun violence in this country, for example, unintentional shootings, we know that's increased 20 to 30 percent in the last year. We are seeing gun violence rage out of control in city centers across the country. That is in part because of easy access to guns, but also because there are so many gun violence intervention and interruption programs that do such great work. But because of COVID, they haven't been able to get out and create the same kinds of relationships and get the same kind of information that they had before about a potential gun violence episode to interrupt it before it can begin. We know that calls to hotlines have increased all over the world and in America. And, you know, Nicholas Kristof, the editorial writer for The New York Times, has a really important saying. He says, in other countries, brutish husbands put their wives in the hospital. In America, they put them in graves. And that is because domestic violence is made so much more deadly when the abuser is armed. You spoke about all that thankfully has happened at the state and city level, although clearly a lot more needs to happen at the state and city level. And yet we know that the federal government does have real power here if Congress and and the president were to choose to do so. So what would you like to see passed through Congress and ultimately wind up on President Biden's desk for him to sign? So we've been doing this work sort of state by state, and that's fine and important but we do need federal laws around gun violence. We're all only as safe as the closest state with the weakest gun laws. There are so many loopholes in these laws that that really desperately need to be modernized. We've spent a long time playing defense. I mean, it, it is important to remember that the gun lobby spent tens of millions of dollars on Donald Trump's campaign. They expected to get a return on that investment. And instead, we had gotten so good at playing defense that the NRA did not pass a single piece of priority legislation in the two years they had both a Republican president and Congress. But now our president is Joe Biden, and we are seeing this legislation move through the House, a bill that would require a background check on every gun sale and close federal loopholes, a bill that would close the Charleston loophole, reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, which includes provisions around dating partners and stalkers, and continuing to allocate funding for community gun violence intervention programs and for research. This issue is not polarizing among the American public. 90% of Americans support background checks, 89% of gun owners, only one in 10 of whom even belongs to the NRA, 87% of Republicans. The only place where gun safety is a polarizing issue right now is in the U.S. Senate. Have you had any particularly memorable conversations as a gun safety advocate with someone who maybe started out believing misconceptions, maybe about you personally or about mom's demand and what you hope to do? My own dad. (laughs) When I started this work back in 2012, my dad is is a very conservative person. Uh, he comes from a conservative family. He lives in Illinois. And he really was not supportive of the work I was doing. And I do think it's because he had a lot of misconceptions about what I was trying to do. And I think, frankly, seeing shooting tragedies, not just at a national level, but in his own community, for him to decide that the more he knew, the more he understood my dad is devoutly Catholic, that this was part of his pro-life agenda as a Catholic, that fighting gun violence was uh, an important way to save lives. And now he shows up in his Mom's Demand Action t-shirt at our events, and we may not agree on, on a lot of issues, but we do now agree on this one. What conversations do you think we're not having enough of when it comes to gun violence? You know, I think of, of how many lives we lose to suicide every year. I don't think many people understand that is a huge part of our gun violence crisis in this country. What comes to mind is areas where you don't think we have enough public attention or focus? Absolutely. I think suicide, you know, there is still stigma around that issue in this country or any mental health issue. And talking about guns and and access to guns with people who may have suicidal ideation, particularly during a pandemic, is so incredibly important. Our our veterans in particular are a very vulnerable segment of of 
the population. I also think talking about toxic masculinity and domestic violence and extremism and guns is very important. And because women only make up about 20% of all the elected positions in this country, because women are only about 5% of Fortune 1000 CEOs, there are only certain levers of power that we can pull, right? We're not making the laws and the policies necessarily that protect our families and our communities. So it is important for us to look for other ways to influence the conversation. As the saying goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And so often that is the case with women in this country. Since your organization is called Moms Demand Action, I am curious what advice you would have for moms or any parent as to how to talk about this issue with our kids so that they're hopefully empowered to advocate for the solutions we know work that are really important to protect their lives too. I really do think women and moms are the secret sauce to advocacy in this country. Because look, they they know if they lose their children, they have nothing left to lose. That this issue is such high stakes. And so many moms come into our organization because they've sent their kindergartners to school for the first time, and they've had to essentially rehearse their own deaths. My children started active shooter drills in preschool. Preschool. And look, we know that these lockdown drills cause trauma and anxiety. We don't have to live like this. Our children sure as hell shouldn't die like this. So we all have to get off the sidelines. There's this story that, that resonates with me as an activist that I read once. And there was a woman who made sandwiches for people who were homeless in her community. And, and the newspaper decided to write a story about her. And they asked her, you know, what would you tell other people? And she said, I get calls all the time thanking me for making sandwiches or giving me money to make sandwiches. And what I want to tell people is make your own damn sandwiches. I'm glad that you appreciate the work I'm doing, but you have to do the work too. We're all obligated as Americans in in a democracy to use our voices and our votes to not just protect our own families and communities, but others, other Americans. And so I would just encourage everyone, again, we're not just moms or we're not just women, we're mothers and others, to get involved and to get off the sidelines and to use your voice and your vote on this issue because we have waited 25 years at a federal level for change and now is the time to be doing everything we can to demand our lawmakers act. Shannon, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for bringing attention to this issue. Shannon Watts is the author of Fight Like a Mother, how a grassroots movement took on the gun lobby and why women will change the world. If you're interested in getting involved with Moms Demand Action, just text the word READY to 64433 to find a local group near you. To start a conversation with your senator about the importance of background checks, you can text CHECKS to that same number, 64433. After the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, a new generation of gun violence prevention activists took center stage. Parkland survivors, along with young people who had been working on this issue in their own communities, captured national attention with the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. They crisscrossed the country on the Road to Change tour to mobilize their peers and to register them to vote to support candidates committed to gun violence prevention. And they've been working hard ever since. One of those activists is my next guest, Bria Smith. She's 20 years old, grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and serves on the Youth Board of Directors for March for Our Lives. She's deeply involved in local organizing in her community and led a 50-mile march from Milwaukee to Madison to demand that local officials do more to protect Black youth in Wisconsin. It was great to talk with her about how she came to this work and why it matters so much to her. So, Bria, I think what would be a really helpful place to start is for you to share how you got involved. I always love being asked that question because it's like, what radicalized you? What made you like give a fuck about politics or just getting rid of the political apathy? That radicalization started when I was six years old, learning about slavery in a room full of white people, learning about my history. But I think what really got me into it was when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. My schools had a complete 180. Like I knew my school was racist, like don't get me wrong, but kids started wearing MAGA hats, MAGA shirts, like telling all my Mexican friends to go back to Mexico, calling me the N-word, da 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 And like, I think what really shifted for me then, I quit track, I cleared up all my after-school activities, I started working in my community, and that's when I started doing gun violence advocacy. I got involved with the Milwaukee Youth Council and really going out into my community and seeing like how we can ask people questions, how we can get people 
to strategize collectively. I do, though, want to ask you to sort of return back a little bit to the beginning of your story as to why when you started to really become an activist, as you said, become radicalized, why gun violence prevention specifically was an issue that you wanted to work on, that you wanted to try to help? One thing that I noticed growing up was the gun culture. It was this like hyper-Americanized fantasy that people like in my community had if you had a gun, you that dog, you know, like that's an identity that people started to chase and desire because having a gun meant protection and meant status. So gun violence is what I was exposed to the most. Like going to sleep, you'd hear gunshots waking up. Maybe you hear gunshots walking down the street. You hear a few pops. Like it was just, it was just so normalized that I just didn't think that any other community didn't have gun violence, you know, but when I started going to school and I started seeing like how other communities that were mostly white, there was no gunshots. It was peacefulness. It was quiet. Gun violence really sets a precedent for lots of different things that goes afterwards. Like if it's mass incarceration, if it's mass shootings, if it's suicide by firearm. And when I started to like really research that when I was 16, 17, everything had a connection to a gun. You start asking yourself, why do we need guns? Like, who are we afraid of? It was each other in my community. We were afraid of each other. How do we collectively get rid of that fear? How do we collectively find the root of disorder, find the root of where this fear is coming from? And a lot of times it's poverty. A lot of times it's not having adequate resources like mental health protection, all these things people were being deprived of resulted them to going to crime, resulted them to picking up a gun, resulted them to finding that new identity. And this whole continuous cycle just goes on and on and on. And, it, and that's what I would like always think about. Bria, you spoke about the collective solutions that can help change the lived reality of kids and families in Milwaukee, in your community. Can you talk about some of those solutions and what you have seen to work over the last five years since you've been engaged in this work? It's always hard to tell people to reimagine things that they have never experienced. I think what was more important for me was letting people understand that it's possible to create a definition of what reimagination looks like as if it's something that we all deserve. Like, how do you want to see yourself? In a society where all your needs are met, where everything is equitable, where you don't fear your life stepping out onto the hood, into the block, you don't have that fear. What does that look like to you? What I've seen work a lot is really giving the community that chance to answer the question. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So, Bria, I'm just really curious how you have worked with older activists who have been you know, really trying to make progress on gun violence prevention for a long time. Have you learned anything from them? And what do you think you've taught them? When I was organizing the march back in Milwaukee in 2020, it was so hard to get young people to prioritize the march, to prioritize the urgency behind advocating. But then there's older generation activists, people who work in non-profiting, for example, people who know the game, who've been movement building for, you know, mad years, but aren't in the front lines. Having the conversation between these people, those who work in non-profiting, understand 501c3s and the logistics behind non-profit building, and also talking to the young people who literally are the most angry at the protest. They have really nothing to lose. Really having these conversations from all perspectives, you can see where that the movement can take you, where that organizing can take you. When I started to really talk to older people, like I just felt at first, just so mad. I'm like, why don't y'all care? You know, why, don't, why aren't you as angry as me? Why aren't you going out into the front lines? But in reality, it's how do you speak that language to create that urgency to get people to care? And that was a big eye-opener for me organizing last year in my community because I thought I knew everything. In reality, I just needed to listen and observe and connect people, connect myself with people, and um, have that multi-generational conversation. So I definitely learned patience from older people, what patience and movement organizing looks like, because, you know, a lot of times young people just want it to happen tomorrow. Like, tomorrow, college is free, and we didn't have homelessness, and, you know, racism didn't exist. That's how I fight. That's how I organize. But I had people my parents' age telling me it takes time to build a revolution. It takes time. It takes energy. If you rush things too fast, you can lose that step and lose people in your messaging. Um, And I think one thing that I also taught older people was to also understand priority, understand urgency. We can simultaneously draft strategies with all types of people having this interconnected, multi-generational, you know, coalition of what revolution looks like. Like it doesn't always need to be like step by step taking more time within that. Are there any initiatives that you're especially proud of, the things that you've worked on in Milwaukee or at a national level with March for Our Lives, where you can say, yes, like, I know I made a difference here. The legacy of March for Our Lives was created by this horrendous, sickening act of violence, but it sparked a movement of youth creativity and leadership and coalition building. And one thing that I'll say with my work with March for Our Lives is when I first started off, I was just focusing on my community, focusing on local national Milwaukee things, Black people, police brutality. But while working with March for Our Lives and creating all these agendas and our national structure, and it's not just people working within this organization, it's so many different entities that are out there that are organizing, that are revolutionizing. And for March, we were able to have this discourse with them. Now I can say that we're focusing on that reimagination and really asking the community, like, how do we reimagine peace? How do we reimagine safety? So on a national level, I think we're really moving in that step And it takes a couple of students to really like put matters into their own hands and think of progressive actions and where our politicians are lacking. Thank you so much just for your time today, for sharing why you're doing this work, how this work connects to public health 
uh, to racial justice, to everything that we know desperately needs to change. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You can keep up with Bria Smith by following her on Twitter at Bria Smith. That's B-R-I-A-A-S-M-I-T-H-H. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, for a long time, Congress effectively prohibited federal funding from being used to study gun violence and what works to prevent firearm injury and to save lives. But in December of 2019, that changed. And thankfully, research is now ramping up on this urgent public health issue. One of the people at the forefront of this work is Dr. Chetan Satya. Chetan is a pediatric trauma surgeon and a National Institutes of Health-funded firearm injury prevention researcher. He serves as director of the Center for Gun Violence Prevention at Northwell Health, the largest health system in New York State. All of which is to say he is deeply immersed in this issue, and I am delighted to be able to speak with him. Can you help share how your training and your work as a pediatric trauma surgeon led you to the issues of gun violence prevention and safety? Yeah, you know, I uh, am originally Canadian. And I came to Chicago many years ago. And when I got to Chicago, I was pretty blown away by the levels of gun violence that I was seeing. As a pediatric trauma surgeon, I have the unfortunate job of literally pulling bullets out of babies and kids who are affected by gun violence. I did not expect to have to pull bullets out of six-month-olds in my first week on the job. And you can imagine seeing that little lifeless baby on the table over and over again, having to put your finger on a bullet wound, watching them fade away, watching parents' reactions to that happening in front of your eyes, and then having to break bad news to parents over and over again, that they've lost a loved one to a largely preventable disease is horrendous. And so I think there is nothing else to do but to be activated about this issue from the healthcare lane, because I think there's a lot that we can do to assist with the public health approach. I understand that we're one small piece of the puzzle, but I do think there's a lot we can do. For many years, we didn't have NIH-funded research into firearm injury prevention, and yet thankfully now we do, and you are one of those NIH-funded researchers. Could you talk about what research you're doing and also what other research is happening around the country that you think may really help identify what could work? I always like to say that gun violence prevention is almost akin to a new disease. We have to research everything from the most basic elements. And our research is really focused on how do we have the conversation, even with our patients, about firearm safety and firearm injury prevention. In the healthcare industry, there are strategies we can do to help. Most physicians, clinical team members, believe they should counsel patients and families about firearm safety. And patients themselves, gun-owning or not, want their physicians to talk to them about this. Only about 8% of physicians or clinical team members actually have these conversations with their patients. So our research is geared towards implementing evidence-based healthcare strategies that can prevent gun violence into our hospitals. And one of the most exciting elements of our research is that it's universal. So similar to substance use, right, we've seen that universal screening, asking every patient who comes into our hospitals questions related to substance use, can serve to reduce stigma, remove judgment, normalize the conversation as part of routine care, For example, ask about substance use no different than you ask about sugar intake, exercise, or other health risk factors. We want to do the same thing with firearms. So we're hoping to really shift the paradigm and change the conversation. I find that so encouraging because we know from other areas in public health that universal application is hugely important to destigmatizing. Exactly. And, you know, we are, even at our health system, noticing that the large majority of healthcare workers are very uncomfortable having these conversations, as are patients. You would think that if you talk about firearms in the context of just well-being, safety, from an apolitical standpoint, that folks might be comfortable with this conversation, but they aren't. But again, I think if we educate and we do it the right way, and we be careful with the language that we use, and we make it clear that this is not a gun control issue, this is not a Second Amendment issue, this is purely about safety and injury prevention, that we can overcome these barriers. And the lessons we learn I think will have implications for other sectors across the country. And to your point, the universal aspect is so critical because otherwise you have healthcare workers who have to literally decide who to screen and who not to. And that in itself causes a lot of discomfort. And then causes bias in your research, right? Yep, exactly. Perceived risk. How do you see your work in coordination with community organizations, with faith leaders, 
schools, with other places that we know are grappling with how to be really part of the solution, again, from an apolitical but evidence-based way of really tackling the crisis of gun violence. I think it is absolutely critical for that collaboration with the community. Our research study, for example, when a patient comes into our emergency department, we are going to ask questions in a confidential manner, not about ownership, purely about firearm access, and then questions directly related to gun violence risk in the community that have nothing to do with access. So you can imagine if someone screens positive for access, they get gun safety, firearm safety, safe storage counseling, they get gun locks, they get firearm courses. We have an active coalition of gun owners who are engaged in that process as well. And then if someone screens positive for violence risk, we have a whole slew of community-based organizations, violence interrupters, faith-based organizations that are on the ready to be able to provide them with resources that they need. Because you're right, without that community bridge, what we do is not going to make any difference. And so can I just ask you now, like, what do you think we could be doing or doing more effectively to prevent suicide by gun? Yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking, the epidemic of suicide in this country. COVID-19 has only made that worse with isolation, anxiety, depression. Mental health is a big part of all the conversations we have around firearm injury mortality prevention. It's part of the screening as well. And I think the most important thing is that access to a firearm in or outside of the household increases the lethality of suicide attempts so much. That is the area to focus on. The more we can educate and inform, our hope is that we can then prevent those suicides from happening. Because we know that the majority of those suicides happen in, in the heat of the moment. And if you have a weapon in the household, chances are that you are going to be successful in killing yourself. Can you talk about how you've seen the pandemic interact with your research or has it interrupted your research? How has your work shifted over the last now many months of COVID-19? It feels like forever. It has changed things quite a bit. We, we've had to be pretty innovative with how we do things. The importance of telehealth, virtual platforms, technology-based platforms, screening, intervention has become even more important in the healthcare setting. And I think we see, for example, a big change in the number of patients that are coming in with certain issues. So for example, when it comes to child abuse, we're seeing less and less child abuse. And that kind of thing is very worrisome. We know that kids are more isolated at the home. They have less social supports less interaction with schools. So we are seeing, for example, more kids that are coming in with delayed diagnoses of child abuse. And we are having to adapt with virtual interventions to be able to keep contact in a way that is appropriate with the pandemic. The same could be said for other issues such as domestic violence. That has led to a spike in gun violence in itself when it comes to homicide in the home. And then we talked about suicide from increasing social stressors, unemployment, and then we are also seeing, personally, a spike in accidental injuries among children in the household, you know, who are accidentally playing with a gun. We've seen a huge surge in gun buying among Americans because of the COVID-19 pandemic, many of whom are first-time gun owners. So most of them don't know much about firearm safety. And so this really is providing an opportunity for us to ramp up education and making it even more important. We're taking a quick break. Stay with us. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Say I'm a patient and I'm coming to see you for the first time. So say that my child has had some sort of injury, although thankfully, knock on wood, my kids haven't had anything too serious happen to them. But say like one of them's injured, I I come to see you, we're talking about, I don't know, a a broken leg because one of them fell climbing a tree. How do you segue from that into talking to me about whether or not I have a firearm in the house? The broad answer is that we're still trying to figure it out. We don't have the perfect recipe, but especially for children, families, parents, patients who come in injured, it's a very nice segue into firearm safety because you can imagine that I would be talking to you about avoidance of that injury happening again, playground safety, ways to avoid motor vehicle collisions, drowning. So let's say we're talking about, okay, you have a pool in your backyard. Take these precautions to make sure that you don't have an accidental drowning because we see an uptick of that in the summer. By the same token, Do you have access inside or outside of the firearm? And I'm only asking that question because there are ways to safely store that firearm that could prevent accidental injury of your children or yourselves and reduce risk of suicide. Your hospital system is very committed to this. There are hundreds of other hospital systems around the country who are similarly committed to this. And yet there are others who are resistant. What do you think explains that resistance and how do we help overcome it? That's spot on. You know, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because if you look at who is the most vocal on this subject, it tends to be clinical team members. There are very few healthcare executives, board members, and so on at the large health systems that offer the bulk of care to Americans that are vocal and say that gun violence is a public health issue and this should be an institutional priority for them. I've been a little surprised as to how difficult it is to mobilize all those levels of the healthcare industry. And unfortunately, the way that things are structured, I'm not saying that this is intentionally done, but gun violence is profitable for hospitals, right? What a horrific thing to have to say. I know, I know. This kind of speaks to how I think there has to be a real push to incentivize hospitals, health systems, insurance companies, Just like there was a push for preventative care for heart disease and diabetes, there needs to be a push for preventative action for firearm injury. But at the end of the day, right, if a firearm injury happens, that patient comes into the emergency department, gets a surgery, has a long hospital stay. Unfortunately, there isn't always top-down buy-in or organizational prioritization of this issue. And how do you think we change that? 
I think it comes down to collective action, education. We are finding even through our collaborative, which is actually very unique, 65% of members, hospitals, health systems in our collaborative have never done anything in this space. But through education, they are becoming empowered to want to act. They're further understanding the benefits of acting. So we're trying to implore that education collectively. And through that, people's minds are definitely shifting. What do you wish were different about the public conversation around gun violence in our country? I personally wish that there was more of an understanding that public health approaches can work. We've used them for decades. People forget that it wasn't that long ago that it was taboo for physicians to even talk about smoking cessation, but we overcame all that. I also feel as though if COVID-19 has has brought anything to the forefront of my mind, it's that the need for more federal oversight of our public health issues is paramount. I think one of the biggest issues right now is that we are so divided across states as to what is a priority, what is not, what approach to take to certain things, and what approach not to take. And that unfortunately leads to chaos. And I think if I were to change or, or want to change anything would be more federal coordination of issues like this. Because in my experience, even when I was in Canada, that type of federal oversight really makes a difference. How important is it, do you think, that the people engaged in the research and the implementation are coming from the communities that are most affected by gun violence? It is 100% critical. We cannot do this without those voices. Whether you're talking about firearm safety and engaging gun owners, or whether or not you're talking about community violence and engaging community-based organizations, community voices from black and brown communities, we can't do any of this without them. So I think it is our responsibility to support those organizations as much as we can to be able to find out what works and what doesn't. And, you know, in our own research, I mean, both those voices and community voices are a huge part of how we shape our education. We're not taught in medical school either how to have conversations around violence risk, how to have culturally competent discussions with at-risk communities. So we need to be educated ourselves. We need to be educated about our own biases, about how we can overcome our own judgments and stigma, because that's a big part of this as well. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you, Chelsea. I really appreciate you taking this issue on. You can follow Chetan on Twitter at Dr. Chetan Satya. That's C-H-E-T-H-A-N-S-A-T-H-Y-A. For a long time now, we've known at least some of what works when it comes to preventing gun violence. But sin in the way were our politics and the powerful gun lobby. But if there's ever been a time to feel hopeful about our ability to finally address this crisis head on, it's now. Earlier this month, the NRA suffered a serious setback when a federal judge in Texas rejected their attempt to avoid standing trial for financial abuses here in New York. President Biden has rightly called the epidemic of gun violence in the U.S. an international embarrassment. He's also taking a series of executive actions to strengthen common sense gun safety laws, and he's called on Congress to pass comprehensive gun safety legislation. And Chasen and other doctors are having conversations every day about gun violence prevention with their patients. All of this is happening in a moment when more and more people are finally talking about and acknowledging this issue for what it is. Not just a personal tragedy, not just a community tragedy, but a pressing public health issue we should be taking on with our doctors, our friends, our family, our fellow parents, our legislators, and anyone else we can reach. I know I'm certainly ready to have this conversation, and I hope you are too. In Fact is brought to you by iHeartRadio. We're produced by Erica Goodmanson, Lauren Peterson, Kathy Russo, Julie Subrin, and Justin Wright. With help from the Hidden Light team of Barry Lurie, Sarah Horowitz, Nikki Huggett, Emily Young, and Huma Abedin. With additional support from Lindsay Hoffman. Original music is by Justin Wright. If you liked this episode of In Fact, please make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And tell your family and friends to do the same. If you really want to help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.